0: Dr. King, later on, who at the time the strike began was in the process of organizing and mobilizing for the Poor People's Campaign, uh, his view was and vision uh, was that that the country as a whole ought to really see the face of poverty. So he saw uh, ultimately the Memphis strike. As, as, as a symbol of the conditions that he was trying to dramatize to the nation, because these were men who worked every day. Uh, yet they had no way to change their circumstances or to affect their pay rates or to affect their safety and health provisions. They had no way to do that. And this strike became not only an, ultimately an economic strike, But it was a strike about what we used as the definition of respect and dignity for people who did that kind of work.
1: Hey, folks, this is Stephen Pitts, host of Black Work Talk, an organizing upgrade podcast. Here we take a look at efforts around the country to build the collective power of black workers. We made it past January 20th. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are now president and vice president. This felt so much different than January 20, 2009. We did not have over a million people braving the cold to see the first black president being sworn in. We did not have a festival of pre-inauguration music capped by Pete Seekers leading a choir singing, This Land is Our Land, including the verse condemning private property. Instead, the National Mall was covered with 200,000 American flags honoring the 40,000 who died in this country from COVID. The memory of those deaths and the echo from the insurrection cast a somber pall over the celebration. We did have Amanda Gorman summing our better angels through a poetry. And we had those hilarious, never-ending burning memes. But still, this was different. Yes, Trump is no longer president, and gone is his capacity to use the executive branch as an extension of the white nationalist authoritarian movement. But the barbarians are still at the gates, in some cases literally. Mitch McConnell's still doing his best to outdo Machiavelli. And in some cases, Democrats still advocate a bipartisan approach to addressing the nation's multiple crises. In these moments, it is good to remember Fetra Douglas's insistence that power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did and never will. Our guest this week on Black Work Talk fully understands what Douglas meant. William A. Lucy retired in 2010 after over 50 years as a leader of the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees, ASME, at the local and national level. Since 1972, Bill had been the Secretary-Treasurer of ASME, the number two officer in the union. I've known Bill... For over 10 years, but I've known of Bill for decades because of his role in supporting the sanitation workers in Memphis during their 1960 strike and his role in co-founding the Coalition of Black Trade Unionists in 1972. He has been a consistent advocate for Black workers within the labor movement while simultaneously insisting on the importance of union and union jobs in raising the quality of life in the Black community. I've never sat down and talked with Bill at length, and I'm excited to have these conversations. But I do want to remind you that we need your support. Here at Black Work Talk, we are committed to developing a vibrant conversation bringing you the key voices building Black worker power in the workplace and the neighborhood. Bringing you the best guests and the most timely discussions takes resources. We depend upon people power to grow. So please go to Patreon. To make a financial contribution, small or large, and become a part of our community to support the work we do here at Black Work Talk. So starting, this is Bill Bill, thanks for coming on my show. I really appreciate it. How are you doing today?
0: I'm doing fine. I really appreciate the, the opportunity to be on with you, Steve. Yeah.
1: This is kind of a bright day today, because um on the 20th, we we had a little bit of freedom on the 20th. The man left the left town, right? A little <laughs> bit better.
0: I had a number of folks call me. They were singing, Hit the Road, Jacks." <laughs>
1: that, that might be my new theme song for this episode, OK, so I know what, what we're talking about. Um, but in that sense, it's a glorious day. But it's funny, in some ways, we're kind of back to 2008 now, in a lot of ways, you know? Right, right. they We're going to try to do things that could be obstructionist, and we'll do the best we can do. Hmm. But as I said, I'm, I'm glad you're on the show. I want to talk to you about a lot of things. There's so much to talk about, Bill, wow. Um, so eventually, I want to get to hearing your thoughts on how to go forward with Black folks in the labor movement. Uh-huh. Before we get there, um, one question, Bill is how did you get into how did you get into the labor movement? What got you into the labor movement, man?
0: Well, you know, I um, I, I I worked about thirteen years for Contra Costa County uh, over in Martinez.
1: Okay, I hear Yes, that's cool.
0: And got engaged with the organization that represented county employees. Uh, it, it wouldn't be fair to call it a labor union. Uh, it was an employee association. Uh, I got involved in the late 50s uh, on through the uh, 60s. And our, our work was really simply trying to make the organization really more relevant to the needs of workers across the county. And we had an awful lot of different classifications of workers, so our work was not related to uh, discrimination, et cetera. It was really related to trying to gain more power for public sector employees in dealing with the county government. Um, we, We had an association and if you if you know Contra Costa County and, and you know that their, their system was a pretty good system. It was a civil service system, but in the, in the 50s and the 60s, a very decent organization, but it, it really did not deal with the basic needs of folks in the workforce because the civil service system had really taken on power and authority beyond what its original reason for being was. Uh, employees had the right to holler and scream after something had happened to them. Um, We started a discussion about whether or not we really wanted to have a real operational voice in those issues that affected our day-to-day work life. So that discussion started among county employees uh, of all classifications who were members of the uh, uh, Contra Costa County Employees Association. And ultimately it got into a discussion of whether or not we wanted to be a a union in the true sense of the word and uh, over a little bit of time we, we just really decided we want to have a discussion as to if we wanted to be a true union as opposed to an association. how do we do that and we got into the discussion process and ultimately had a countywide vote within the membership of the association as to whether or not we really wanted to be a union. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, the good guys won that debate. (laughs) (laughs) And then our second question was, okay, now we want to be a union. Who do we want to be a union with? And it was about that time that a real debate was coming from east to west about the uh, rights of public employees to organize and bargain collectively. Uh, and we saw that as a a, a, a debate we wanted to, wanted to be a part of. And uh, we ultimately voted to be a union. We ultimately voted to be a part of the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees. Uh, and we then set about trying to figure out how do we organize or, or affiliate other county employees associations into this new thing okay. we were trying to build. Okay. And uh, we we, did very well, uh, we, 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 we became a part, uh, I believe it's was 1961 or two of Me, Uh and began to actively participate and trying to encourage other independent associations to affiliate with organized labor also. Country Costa County, as you will know, know, Steve, is a very strong labor county, was then, and it is now. Uh, and we saw it as a way of bringing more power to public sector employees being a part of the legitimate labor movement in the county.
1: Well, Bill, just so our listeners know, um Contra Costa County is right north of, of Oakland, just in California. So people know that; uh, who listening may not know the terrain. I'm here in Oakland, so I know right away. But some people <laughs> may not know. So, Bill, one last question on that starting movement: roughly, what was the racial demographics of the workforce as you were getting people into the union?
0: Uh, the, 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 the county workforce was probably 8%, 10% people of color, uh, very small black representation. Uh, and part of what we were trying to do was, first of all, just get power so that we could have access to trade union relationships. Uh, we didn't have, at that point in time, a substantial number of, of african uh who worked for county government. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a few uh, in the blue-collar section, uh, primarily uh, public works, like that. Uh, I was uh, employed in the uh, public works department, but in the engineering section of uh, of that department, and we had very few few uh, uh, black employees at that time. Uh, the dominant uh, workforce uh, was in healthcare. Social services and healthcare, the county hospital, uh, and other unions where blue-collar workers were the dominant force.
1: So, how did they receive your leadership, man? How did a, a non-black workforce receive your leadership?
0: Well, I, as as I said, I had been a part of that discussion in the association. Uh, when we decided to become a trade union, we lost about over oh, 1, thousand, twelve hundred workers. Uh, we had a membership at that point, about 6,000, 7,000 county employees uh, countywide. Uh, and I was simply one of those who has thought the issue of being a true trade unionist made some sense. And uh, I, in 64, 65, I became very active uh, among the various committees that dealt with the um, issues affecting public sector employees in the county. Uh, I became president in 64 or 65, the time escapes me right now, and served as president for a couple of of years. And then in 66, uh, well, in 64, uh, we became a very active part of the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees. And uh, at that time, state government and federal government were becoming such an integral part of the way county government ran and worked. And in 53, I believe it was, Eisenhower uh, passed a massive program of aid to secondary highway construction. And so our County became a major part and partner with state government in doing the highway uh, construction programs. And uh, our, our organization became actively engaged in that and I uh, along with it.
1: So- so around this time, in the mid-60s, you joined the the, the national staff of the union. And, why and, you made, I'm sorry. Why did you make that move?
0: Well, uh, as I said, in, in the mid-60s, the federal government uh, and state government were becoming so such an integral part of what county government was doing. Uh, and after we affiliated with ASME, uh, the new national leadership, President Jerry Wirth, uh, asked and raised the question of whether or not I wanted to consider coming to work for the National Union because we were trying not only to organize more public sector workers, but also to represent ourselves in those areas where federal government uh, uh, grant and partnership programs was having such an impact on county government and the way it functioned. And in uh, and 66, I agreed to come to work for the National Union the The argument that the agreement was for one year. that has got to be so close to 55 or 60 years ago.
1: <laughs> Both lost track of time, right? That happens yeah. sometimes. So yeah. did you have a certain territory, like the South and Northeast Midwest, or what?
0: No, I, I came to work for the National Union as the uh, Associate Director of the Department of Legislation and Community Affairs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, we were dealing with legislation because uh the federal government was has a, such an incredible role in social services and and in, in highway construction uh in infrastructure development, and we didn't have a voice in that and we want to make he's uh, least try and make sure that public sector workers in our in our county had a voice at the national level when these programs were being put together. so I came back to help begin, as I said, the Department of Legislation and Community Affairs. And we were a, a lobby on behalf of public sector workers, both in our state
1: and certainly across the country. So I know, and listeners need to know, that you were there in Memphis in 68, 67, around, around the, the, the strike, the sanitation strike. Right, were you? My memory, were you actually you from Memphis at some level, Bill, too? Yeah, I was, I was born in Memphis. Oh, That's kind of an interesting coincidence that that. At well, the I, same I, time, I, you go on.
0: When the strike started uh, in '68, uh, the president, uh, his logic escaped me, but he thought because I was born in Memphis, therefore I knew what to do about a sanitation strike in February. Uh, but no, I, I I I I was born in Memphis, and in '67. Uh, well, from 66, 67, and the early part of sixty-eight, I was assigned to Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. and I had you know the responsibilities across the country. At the time when the strike started in in uh, February of sixty-eight, I was assigned to Detroit, Michigan. At that point in time, and then went from Michigan to Memphis uh,
1: for the involvement there. Yeah, yeah. So we can't go through the details of the strike. We have we don't have five years to talk, by the way. But for <laughs> our listeners, I put in the show notes. There's there's two good sources. One is a film called At the River I Stand, right. about an hour films, phenomenal film about the strike, and it really it's phenomenal. Right. And then Askin made a short about ten minute version of this, that film as well. It's good to hear. But you know, a lot of us have, have seen stories of the origin of the strike, with the two brothers being killed. Right. doing the, electric, the electrical shortage in the truck. We have a sense of the, the marches, and we know Dr. King's involvement. Right. But are think sort of hidden stories you might want to share with, with us that didn't get to the, the headlines and stuff?
0: Well, the, the, the Memphis story is, is pretty much like the story of thousands and thousands of, 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 of Black workers, primarily across the South and in many other places across the country, where the nature of the work was almost made it reserved for Black workers. Uh, and that's and and out of that and the absence of collective bargaining of any shape, form, or fashion is is was the the catalyst to the strike itself. Um, Memphis at its beginning was not an economic strike. It was really a, a strike about recognition of the need for workers to have a vehicle that they could resolve their day-to-day problem. Uh, and across the South, in general, and Memphis in particular blue collar work and particularly sanitation work was almost reserved for black workers. And the, 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 the work itself was some of the most dangerous and most difficult work within the public sector. And the strike grew out of one, the, the, the deaths of the two, two uh, workers involved, Echo Cole and uh, uh, Robert Walker, who were crushed in the back of their truck uh, on a day that the weather was just bad and they simply got in the back of their packing mechanism uh, to get out of the weather. Uh, and the, the best we can figure, some sort of an electrical occurrence triggered the mechanism and it sort of drug them into the back of the truck and killed them. Wow. And that's when we began to discover. I shouldn't say we began to discover, but the workers knew all the time the danger of the equipment, the unsafe equipment, the lack of uh, maintenance. and and, and and repair, uh, and they would complain about it, but they had no place where these complaints would be taken serious, uh, and, and and they were just frustrated. And then we discovered that there was no basic programs to cover the problems that these crew workers had in their families, and then we discovered there was a lot of stuff they didn't have, you know, uh, grievance procedures, uh, safety uh, provisions. And so the normal things that we see in 2020 that that worker contracts uh, have within them, this didn't exist for these workers. And the strike grew out of that. And uh, as you pointed out, uh, Dr. King later on, who at the time the strike began was in the process of organizing and mobilizing for the Poor People's Campaign that he was bringing to Washington, DC. Uh, His view was, and vision, was that that the country as a whole ought to really see the face of poverty. It it ought to see the face of the people who work every day, but can't raise themselves out of poverty and have no way to uh, uh, bring a solution or a remedy to the kinds of issues that they confronted on a day-to-day basis. Mm -hmm. So he saw, ultimately, the Memphis strike. As, as as a symbol of the conditions that he was trying to dramatize to the nation because these were men who worked every day, uh, yet they had no way to change their circumstances or to affect their pay rates or to affect their safety and health provisions. They simply had no way to do that. And this strike became not only a, ultimately an economic strike, but it was a strike about what we used as a definition of respect and dignity for people who did that kind of work. And uh, the contribution that these men made to the understanding of the uniqueness of this work was tremendous. Uh, President Obama, as a matter of fact, inducted all of them into the uh, Labor Hall of Fame, which is a a uh, program by the Labor Department, US Labor Department, that recognized people who had made a contribution uh, to uh, labor in general.
1: In some ways, the, um, the strike was like straddling the line between the civil rights movement and labor movement. Right. Both right. those sort of things. And, you know, we hear a lot of talk today about the relationship between Black unionists, the labor movement, and Black Lives Matter, and how a lot of ways, you know, Black Lives Matter activists, and black unions had to push the labor movement to look more deeply at racism within its own ranks mm-hmm. and also get more involved in community battles against racism. Did you have a similar dynamic back in the 60s where you saw the AFL pushed by both black unionists and the larger civil rights movement?
0: Well, I believe that there was there was um, uh, uh, a, a lot of pushing of organized labor uh, coming back from the 40s through the 60s. The, the question was, uh, this wasn't focused so much uh, as the Black Lives Movement is focused today, but it was simply trying to open up uh, organized labor so Black workers and other minority groups could get access to jobs and labor and decent jobs for decent pay. Uh, you remember the, the Pittsburgh agreement where steel workers were engaged. I mean, all those were unique kinds of, of struggles. The Black lives, well, let me just say this, that there's a real view, and I think I share it, that the real powerful forces in our society are the forces of organized labor and the forces of religion. And between that mixture, uh, we're able to bring the civil rights movement now into major confrontations between workers, uh, their unions, and their employees. Uh, and the, the 60s and the 70s, began to focus on how to change and how to get organized labor involved in using this power to open up the workforce to to Black and other minority workers.
1: That brings me to the question of, of the formation of the Coalition of Black Trade Unionists. I mean, I know you're one of the five co-founders right. of, of the CBTU. It was formed in 1972, right? 1972. What kind of gave impetus to the formation of a coalition of factory unionists?
0: Well, with, with what we had learned, Steve, coming from the 50s and the 60s, uh, that labor was an incredibly powerful force, the question is whether or not that force had been used on behalf of all of its membership. Uh, and we began to take a look at it to see how best we could get it to be a more powerful force uh, and, and uh, in the context of unique kinds of needs that Black workers had, uh, whether it was uh, uh, apprenticeship programs, training, uh, health and safety issues, promotions across the board, the involvement in trade union administration, uh, Blacks taking leadership roles in local unions are in various structures across the trade union movement. And we didn't see this, but we were we were working in that direction. Uh, In the contest that developed between um, Richard Nixon and Hubert Humphrey, I guess it was, and later on George McGovern, uh, you know, Black labor leadership really had been critical to any number of campaigns nationally uh, where we were working to improve uh, the lot of labor. So when George McGovern became the nominee for the Democratic Party in six in sixty at uh, uh, sixty eight, and the battle with Richard Nixon took place, the American labor movement decided to take a position of neutrality in a national presidential campaign. Mm-hmm. Well, for for us, I mean, we could tell the difference between you mm-hmm. know George McGovern and Richard Nixon, I mean, we had spent four years of Nixon economics uh, and we had spent four years of his uh, Southern strategy and all of that. So the the five people you spoke of, we simply said, we, we can't, we cannot have a position of neutrality and be relevant to the people we think we represent. Uh, so the federation took a position. And I think it was his right to do it, but we simply said we won't. We won't follow that. Uh, we believe that, that that Nixon has done enough to the black community and poor community that we should stay who where we stand, and we said that. Uh, uh, the, the American labor movement was not happy. Uh, yeah, I was going to as,
1: ask they, you that how they responded that. Yeah.
0: yeah, they 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 ultimately came to a conclusion that that Ooh. we could. Uh, be supportive of the candidate we we chose. And um, of course, George McGovern did not win, uh, but it set the foundation for having a discussion about the relevance of organized labor uh, to to its black membership and and all other memberships uh, where there are fundamental issues that Black workers and other minority workers had a difference of opinion. And so we thought there needed to be a discussion about this among other Black leadership across the country and Black membership. So we, uh, after the election you know, wound down, we set about trying to figure out how to have this discussion. And we spent about a year uh, talking to black workers, black leadership across the country and saying, was there something needed so that our voice is on the table when these kinds of discussions are made uh, and had? And uh, we set about to try and figure out what kind of organization we needed to do that. And out of that discussion came the formation of the Coalition of Black Trade Unions, And uh, that was, it was, a lot of people had a little trouble with the name. They wanted to know why do you have to call it the Black Trade Unionist. And my thing was in 1972, if you can't define your mission uh, and you've got to be sensitive to calling it Black, then
1: there's something fundamentally wrong. So we chose the name uh, intentionally. But let uh, me so- be clear, you're saying some Black Unionist didn't want, didn't want to be called Black Trade Unionist or white folks. Oh,
0: yes. Oh, yes. I mean, that, that was real concern as to the implications of that. And our argument was, if we can't call ourselves black trade unionists and black workers today, there's, there's a lot wrong. So we set the organization up in 1972. Uh, and it wasn't an organization that was opposed to the AFL-CIO. It was an organization to make the AFL-CIO more sensitive to the unique needs of black workers and black labor leadership and uh, we still exist to this day. Uh, And uh, we've been proven right uh, on that argument. Uh, And certainly just recently, we've been proven right uh, on the relevance of black workers and black labor when we talk about national political leadership.
1: Going back to the the, the early days of CBTU, as you were talking about kind of saying that we're black, Kind of black and proud, right? how How did CPDU relate to the broader movement around black power?
0: Uh, well, so many uh, <clears throat> so many of the um, uh, workers and membership, they were activists themselves, and they identified with the black Power uh, issues in question. Uh, we we didn't know how to meld these two together to, to have a trade union. Focus, but uh, people will, will recognize their need to have their voice heard on key kinds of issues that affect both their social, political, and their economic life. Uh, there were some unions who didn't agree with it then and don't agree with it now. Uh, but it's becoming clearer and clearer that there's a real need to have a real voice and a seat at the table for for black labor. Uh, and the, the FLCIO has recognized that for some time now. And they have uh, expanded their, their their leadership roles and participations to make space for other groups, uh, Hispanic groups, ALACLA, uh, women uh, under the Coalition of Labor Union Women, uh, Asian Pacifics. I mean, th- th- our argument back then uh, was that you can't have broad policy that doesn't take into account the unique implications of that policy on all the workers. And uh, uh, we, we were not fighting the AFL-CIO. We were simply trying to make sure that the programs and policies that flowed from the AFL-CIO took into consideration the unique implications for Black workers.
1: So excuse me. So CBT was formed at the same time as the Geary Convention, right? About the same time period? Who came, uh, came
0: first? Uh, the CBTU came first. OK. Uh, Gary, well, I can't get the time of the year straight, but about the same time. Yeah. About the same time.
1: So did you and CPT play a big role in the Gary Convention?
0: Well, we played a role. We didn't play a big role because mm-hmm. the, the Gary Convention did not see organized labor a, a, as, as relevant to what they were
1: trying to do. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. That's fascinating, to be honest. Uh,
0: because by and large, our history and, and the the people who were the influence makers at the Gary phenomenon, our history with labor had not been that good. And what was happening in Gary was, as you well know, was, was a fairly sharply focused political direction. Uh, attempting to increase the role of Black political players in the political life of the nation. Mm -hmm. And in many places, with the exception of a two, for instance, Detroit that had a rich labor history, Ohio that had a rich labor history where Blacks had been major parts of both the labor uh, uh, history as well as the political history. And so many of the uh, actors in Gary, you know Dick Hatcher, um, Amari Amima Varaka. Uh, that level you had the uh, uh, the the serious players who didn't see labor as relevant to their issues at all. So those of us who were uh, uh, leadership in the in the CBTU, uh, we went to Gary and participated uh, both as Black trade unions, but but more more importantly, as representatives of our own unions. And uh, over time, we overcame a lot of the the misgivings that others had about organized labor because it it is clear uh, that a a coalition of activists, uh, of civil rights activists, of trade unionists is is a vehicle that's going to improve the quality of life across our country.
1: That's kind of interesting hearing that bill, because on the one hand, unions were a major way that black folks did well in society then, then you know Absolutely. but you see at the same time that black leadership didn't recognize or didn't they didn't really recognize the full power of unions to improve the lives of the the constituencies. and that's that's a fascinating sort of dichotomy that so I'd be wanted to you get your take on that
0: well, you know Dr. King said uh, that. that labor and religion are the two most powerful forces in our society. And he had done this analysis and he was absolutely correct. Uh, But in in, in the 40s, 50s and 60s, you didn't have the level of black labor leadership that has grown uh, since the mid 60s, 70s and so forth. Uh, There were groups of black labor leadership that were Actively engaged in some local activities, but nothing at the, at the national level. Uh, at the time we we're talking, I believe um, Mr. Randolph, A. Philip Randolph, uh, was either a member of, 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 very shortly from being a member of the Executive Council, uh, Brother C. L. Dellums uh, was also a member of the Executive Council. Uh, but you know, the, the power. Uh, was not there to support issues that both of them uh, and many other and maybe some others wanted to pursue uh, until '72. Uh, uh, the, the, it had never been challenged before as to whether or not black perspective was important in a national political race. Uh, the, the process and the procedures were that the executive council. Uh, other structures make a decision, those, those decisions would flow down to the membership. Well, that may have been great in 1930s, but it didn't serve our needs in the 1950s and 60s uh, because you could have one of the greatest supporters of the trade union movement elected to office, but they would have little understanding of the role of trade unions in our community. I mean, they could be a great labor, Speaker, but don't know the implications of some policies as they impact Black and other minority workers.
1: Okay. Which well, was fascinating to thinking through the kind of history, like I'm from Chicago, right? And right. I, I know that Charlie Hayes, right. who became a congressperson, came right. out of Packhouse Workers, right? right. C.L. Dellums, who was a leader both in labor and community high, high in Oakland, right? You think right. of Coleman Young in Detroit, kind of right. UAW sort of thing. Right. So there's a at the local level, there's a strong link between kind of local black activism, right. and labor activism. But you're saying that kind of stayed at the local level, never kind of got up to the national level too much at all.
0: Well, in places where there was rich labor history, like Detroit, uh, where you had the UAW uh, and the role that so many activists played, both as 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 workers, but also as UAW. Uh, Coleman Young is a classic example. Uh, Coleman was a, uh, just an incredible representative of working people. Uh, and his, his loyalty and his commitment was with workers in the UAW, who the Ford, General Motors, uh, Chrysler, Dodge, all of those unions who had substantial Black membership, they were activists on politically and, and socially. Uh, and this was equally true in, let's say, Philadelphia. Uh, certainly in New York, uh, in Cleveland. Uh, the West Coast, as you said, had C.L. Dellons and ILWU. Uh, it, it had a rich trade union history where Blacks had always been a part of, of, of that history.
1: A couple last questions on CBDU, Bill. Um, how does CBDU deal with kind of elements of Black radicalism? So not simply black power, it's sort of a black radicalism. Craig, you mentioned Detroit and people hear a lot about um, the League of Revolutionary Black Workers and so forth. Mm-hmm. And my sense of this is this con some sort of, I mean, I don't know if, if conflict is the right term to use, there was a little, little bit of battle going on there, right? And I think now the whole battle about Bernie and socialism and, and just wondering how do those things throw through the, the the birth of CBTU?
0: Well, I, I, I'd be less than honest, uh, Stephen and said we didn't have our challenges. <laughs> And I, I call them challenges because uh, we were not the first ones to try to put together a national movement that would primarily express and comment on policy from a Black perspective. Uh, there were other groups. And as Detroit, the, the whole drum movement came out of the really active uh, trade, unions, trade unionists who, who saw the role of, uh, of let's say, the UAW. Uh, as being uh, not not um, uh, aggressive enough for them, our initial effort was to try and make sure that our voice was on the table when key decisions like a presidential endorsement was going to be made, and, and so we really had to uh, uh, to form a a, a group who. Who, who was reflective of all of these different movements. You mentioned Charlie Hayes. Charlie Hayes came out of packing House, uh, which was an incredibly progressive union for the time. And I mean, you could go to Packinghouse, meeting, you could find any kind of political thought you want uh, hmm. in the same room. <laughs> equally true when you, when, when you went on the shop floor in Detroit. Uh, equally true when you went into some of the other uh, 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 progressive unions, uh, food and commercial workers, which, you know, I mean, our mission was to try and make sure we, we fought for space for ourselves to have a voice in the process. And, and we made the case uh, that the uh, executive council, which was the leadership body of uh, of organized labor, uh, did not have on board uh, enough people to accurately reflect the, the wants and needs of, of, of black membership. And then the argument came, well, who's going to decide who is the leader of black workers? Well, that's that's not the question. Uh, up until then, they had decided, mm-hmm. if you know what I mean. <laughs> so our argument was, we'll worry about those issues later on. The question we want is, is space in the room, and, and we will decide who represents uh, the thought of black workers? And not that we were moderate or conservative or anything else. We just knew that if you indul- if you be neutral on Nixon, you're not reflecting our our, our hopes and, and, and aspirations. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 19, I'm thinking 95, I believe. Uh, we continued to raise the pressure on the federation. Uh, to 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 accommodate to these these concerns, uh, there were other black organizations. The Philip Randolph Institute uh, existed at the time, and 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 while we had a different approach than they had, we were fundamentally working for the same same goals. And finally, uh, the dynamics were such that that we were able to to press a point we made, and they were forced to. Increased the size of the executive council to accommodate to these these pressures. Uh, they added, um, I believe, twelve new people to the uh, AFL-CIO executive council, uh, and all of them came from these groups that we're talking about: uh, the Hispanics, uh, Asian Pacifics, African Americans, and uh, they may or may not have been happy campers, but but. <laughs> the, 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 uh, the 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 need to expand it to take in different views uh was was made uh, John Sweeney uh, who uh, became president of the FLCL, who I believe did more to open up uh the operation to to make space for all of the various constituencies represented by the, the unions affiliated with the FLCL uh, I think he did more to open this up than any individual uh, who occupied that leadership role.
1: Mm-hmm. One last question on CBTU. Looking back, if you could do a do-over on one or two things, what might you do do different as you launched CBTU?
0: Well, I, I think I, I think Steve, history is showing now, which discussion may have. Or should have started some time back. You know, the, the the National Labor Relations Act prescribes the role that labor will play, uh, and 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 labor itself has has accepted that: it's wages, hours, and working conditions, uh, and there may be some other fuzzy kind of stuff in between. But when you define your role as narrow as that you can't deal with the George Floyd situation. Uh, organized labor has no 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 entry. It has no no way uh to to impact on that. And if if I would have I think if we could have understood all this back when given thought to how do we expand labor's role and responsibility so that there's a a social uh policy aspect to labor's role uh, in the workplace. Uh, You know, if, um, uh, how do you deal with grievances as a contractual matter that involves uh, systemic racism? I mean, now you deal with it one situation at a time. Uh, If if we can figure out uh, how to uh, Get enough power at the local level where local unions who have a role in local union contract negotiations can include social justice type issues as issues that local unions have responsible for pursuing. And and I, I don't know how this is done, but I'm in just,
1: yeah, yeah, it's, it's an
0: idea that brings power of workers of color at the level that they absolutely need it. Mm -hmm. Uh, If your local union is the bargaining agent for Plant X, uh, and Plant X is is having all kinds of troubles with with systemic discrimination, uh, and there's no place to deal with this because there are no accepted legal contractual role and relationship between the union and the employer, it's going to be there for a long time. Whereas if if we can figure out how to do it, we need some big time thinkers like yourself uh, to, to think through how do we have a contractual relationship where the workers in Plant X under a contract negotiated have a voice in dealing with George Floyd-type situation.
1: I know some people are talking about the, this framework called bargaining for the common good, mm-hmm. where you, see, you do see unions tra- taking up issues beyond the narrow sort of bread and butter stuff. Uh-huh. And, my, and my thought has always been, how do you make sure that the vast majority of the membership buys into that? Because I, I imagine you all have to have a situation where if you pull the leaders, they, they'd be down with that, but the membership may not be with them. So the question is always when you kind of broaden the scope beyond the bread and butter, which we need to do, how to do that in a way that brings along the entire membership, not just a few people.
0: Well, the the question is, who are you trying to impact? Uh, A few weeks ago, uh, we saw the money crowd simply say, we're not going to give any more money to folks who voted uh, to support the Trump insurrection. I, it, the, the, the rumbling that came out of that—I mean, when when you say we're not going to give this crowd any more contributions because they're not with the Constitution—well, that's that's a very serious position, and it's going to require a whole lot of people to rethink uh, their their outlook and their relationship. Uh, so, if we're looking at plant X. Uh, and trying to figure out who are we trying to affect? If we're trying to affect the money crowd, uh, that's not an issue that takes anything away from the broad membership. It's an issue that doesn't matter whether it's a black issue or brown issue, if it's corrected, and it's corrected through the use of PAC power or whatever, every member is gonna do well. And secondly, I think, uh, as long as the struggle between Workers is seen as a struggle between the union and the boss. The workers are going to lose that struggle. I mean, the fight has to be made between the 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 boss and the community. Because when the union negotiates better wages, better benefits, the entire community uh, benefits mm-hmm. from that. So, I mean, we we got a lot of work to do. When I say we, I mean the labor movement's got a lot of work to do to try and define its role. That is that is beneficial to a much broader uh, community than just the dues paying members because what we do benefits everybody.
1: Mm-hmm. So, Bill, um, it's funny the labor movement defines young as under thirty five. Okay, <laughs> um, <laughs> kind of strange definition. <laughs> but both, both was past that a couple of years ago though, so we clearly aren't young, right? But um, if we could get a group of 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 you know young black unionists. What would you talk to him about? You know, your assessment of the current day, recommendation. What What would you say? Well, I,
0: I would say what Dr. King said that, that that the power to bring about social change is is caught by and large between two movements: the workers' movement and the social and religious movement. So, if we want to improve the quality of life for workers and improve the quality of life for our communities, we gotta figure out how to get these two groups together. And uh, I, I'm, I'm certainly not one who has thought through it enough to know what the absolute answer is, but but young black workers gotta understand that now is the perfect time for them to take over a leadership role in organized labor uh, to really get in and, and, and become a part of building a stronger movement for the purpose of better wages, better working conditions, better social policies, better uh, policies that affect our day-to-day lives. I mean, uh, if, if your mission is to organize a union that its mission is a nickel more an hour, that's not, that's not what's gonna deal with the, the broad array of issues that we've got. Uh, we've got to build a social movement uh, one that is committed to improving the quality of life for everybody. Uh, and 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 if we are effective in doing it, it'll be able to stand up against the money crowd. Uh, it'll see the um, the basic issues as 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 issues that are improving in the quality of life. I mean I'm, there's a lot of work to be done. and And as you well know, there are parts of this movement. Whose whose only commitment is to a nickel more an hour, uh, but they can they could pay you a thousand dollars an hour, and you have no dignity and no respect. Uh, that's not an environment that's going to contribute to a healthy community that we want to live in.
1: That's kind of um, I could talk with you for, for hours. By the way, you know I really could. A lot of questions that are, I have sworn, sworn through my head that are that I would love to ask you, maybe it'd be a, a part two sometime. But as you were talking about the need to go beyond a nickel more an hour, that made me think of the question of, of black freedom. And how will you define black freedom?
0: Oh, so uh, that's the that's, that's, that's wind
1: down question. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know,
0: I, I, I think um, we were, live in a society that um, uh, starts us off with a level playing field, uh, so that our our accomplishments and achievements are based on our ability to compete uh, in a society that's not going to judge us, as Dr. King says, just by the color of our skin. Uh, I, and I think our movement has to be focused on on, on achieving those goals. Uh, I, I, when, when you raised the question, I thought about you know South Africa. You know when we when we joined the anti-apartheid movement, you know, and we would meet with some of the young trade unionists from there and talk about how they thought, and they simply said they they wanted to live like any other free person in the land of their birth. I mean, they they didn't have a specific definition of it, but they knew it wasn't what they were living with then. And uh, I'm I'm sure now that we have such a complicated economic system, we have such complicated economic policies, that there's always going to be differences between various groups in in, in our our system. And I think a a free and democratic union environment is one that sees the differences and fights to to make them less impactful on those who are least able to deal with it. You know, our our current labor law really almost designed to help those who are doing very well do better. Uh, Those who are not doing well, the law does nothing to help them do better it, it, I, I, that may not have come out right but you understand
1: what I mean yeah, yeah, for sure for sure like if you if you are organized today the log is your tool to get stronger organized but if you aren't organized at all you you out of luck basically what you yeah
0: so well uh for if you're a skills tradesman if you learn the unique uh skill that gives you a, a leg up uh, you've got the right to organize. You've got the right to bargain collectively. Uh, you, you've got the right to fight for all of the benefits of, of, of organization. But if you're a retail worker, if you're a healthcare worker, a daycare worker, uh, a day laborer, all the other so called uh, uh, jobs now that they made it essential in the last six or seven months, uh, if you're those kinds of workers, the law is not designed to help you. I mean, you can win an election and maybe in two years get to sit down at a bargain table with a new boss and a whole new workforce. I mean, it, we've got to figure out a way where the law is uh, available uh, to, the, to the lowest class worker, And then it gets back to the sanitation situation. I mean, how can you have, as Dr. King says, people who work every single day yet can't raise themselves out of poverty? I mean, there's just something contradictory,
1: yeah,
0: uh, in, in our system.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, Bill, really shutting down, closing down. Some two, two last question I forgot to mention to you, but I ask, asked all my guests. So, what books are you reading now? What are you reading right now? Oh,
0: I'm I, I'm not I'm not reading anything right now, Steve. I, um, uh, well, I'm 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 not focused on anything right now. That's I apologize. Then,
1: no, no problem at all. That, that's real real life. How about music, man? Music music push you go in different direction. Any hey, music you listening to?
0: Yeah, well, I I, I, I listen to the hip hop a little bit, and then uh after about <laughs> thirty seconds, I figure out I don't understand it. So <laughs> <laughs> I yeah. I, I, uh, I I like to read. I'm I'm doing I'm trying to figure out some documentaries. Uh, there's some good stuff I saw. Was focused on a program that Harry Belafonte. Uh, he spent a week on, I think it was Johnny Carson. Oh, I saw that.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh,
0: and the, the things that he did and he talked were just so, so incredible. Uh, so I've been trying to, you know, just get into that just a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, trying to think a little bit about the issue I was talking about before. How do we uh, contractually increase the power of local, at the local union level? Uh, where they can deal with some of the social justice issues uh, that uh, are becoming so prevalent now. Uh, I think the, the, the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, young workers, uh, uh, it's, it's an incredibly perfect time for bright new thinkers to come into this movement of ours and use some of that to deal with some of these really complicated issues that are in front of us.
1: Yeah. Um, Thanks a lot. Um I, I've known you maybe for might be 10, to 10, 12 years now, you know. And I I knew it before I knew you because the film as the revived stand the history books. And mm. you know, I, I knew you being this figure, but you're a regular person too, Bill. I, I really enjoyed um getting to know you this year. You, you've done phenomenal work for us. And I'm so glad that 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 you came on my show and just keep on fighting the fight. You say you, you still retire, but you, same work, less pay, right?
0: Retirement is a figment of one's imagination.
1: (laughs) Sounds good. So Bill, thanks a lot, okay?
0: Thank you so much, Steve. I appreciate it.
1: What a great conversation. Beginning with trying to organize his fellow workers in Contra Costa County in the late 1950s through supporting Black workers in Memphis in the late 60s, and concluding his journey as number two person in Ask Me, Bill is the epitome of a movement long-distance runner. We just scratched the surface in exploring lessons from the past and understanding any insights these lessons have for our current and future struggles. I'm sure we will have Bill back on the show. Thanks for joining me here this week on Black Work Talk. I hope this podcast can grow to be part of a network of our movement for change. We need your help as we build the Blackboard Talk community. Please subscribe to the podcast wherever you find your podcasts and go to Patreon to become a sustainer. Until the next episode, stay safe and be well.